Welcome to Verbal Diary, the podcast, with your hosts, Cy Joblin and James Norton. Strap yourself in for the rants and bants. The, the catch is really strong on this, so when you want to yank it off, it just went, no. If you're wondering what's going on, we're trying a new format this week. We are. And I am currently sitting at a table, enthralled as I get to look my co-host, Mr. Jobling, in the eyes for a change. Darling, always a pleasure. How are you, mate? I'm okay. It's been a, an eventful weekend, let's say. Oh, no. Of things. Oh, no. I mean, yeah. How was yours? I, I've had a lovely uh, few weeks. Um, we're recording on Monday morning. It's only about half past eight in the morning, so we might be a little bit weary. Well, you I might be. Am. Um, but it's been a lovely weekend, thank you. Good. What did you get up to? Barbecues. Just the only thing to do in this sort of... It's the only significant thing that I've done. What did you, make? What did you cook? God, now you're asking. Sausages. Excellent. Burgers. Excellent. I made my own little kebab things. Ooh. Chicken kebabs. Chicken. I was going to ask you what meat content. Chicken. Excellent. And we did some mushrooms. Ooh. For the vegetables. Big mushroom. No, for the well, no for the meat eaters who also need to eat vegetables. But I find vegetables never get eaten at a barbecue. Sweet corn is always good on barbecue. We forgot to buy sweet corn. But um, the mushrooms were good because people actually ate Aubergine them. is a good one to go on a barbecue. Well, we didn't have aubergine. Either. Eggplant for the Americans out there. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so we we cooked that meat and then we had another barbecue at a friend's house where there were sausages and burgers and some chicken. You've OD'd on meat this weekend, I haven't you? I have not OD'd. Okay. I've just had a lot. Is it possible to OD on meat? I don't know if it is. I'm willing to take on I'm that fairly sure I had some meat sweats this weekend. But anyway, what's happened with your weekend? Oh, we, we also had barbecues, which was lovely. And then we had the England game yesterday, which was amazing. If you're a football fan, I know you're not really. But um, what a game to watch. I it, did watch it. It was very exciting. The first half was very exciting. Dirty play from the Panamas. Um, and even my wife got excited. And my mother-in-law. They, they never watch football. So it must have been a good game. So, uh, yeah, that was great. And then we planned to have another barbecue yesterday afternoon until um, we had a breakdown in the family. So we had to recover... Um, my father-in-law and son from the side of the motorway in this ridiculous heat as well after a long day. The joys. I oh, you said breakdown. I was thought you meant an emotional breakdown. Like that. I think that was on the cards as well. <laughs> it was a vehicle breakdown and we will find out the damage later on today and see if it's worth even repairing. It could be that bad. Isn't this the second car in like two years that it's the same car that's broken down. Oh, it's the same car? It's the same okay. one, but we have virtually replaced the engine with this one. And for some reason, the gasket, I think, has gone again. So, uh, the joys of real life and vehicles. So, you've had a fun weekend. It was eventful, as I say. So, what's the latest uh, on, on other things in your life? So, you've done the walk. That's over and done. What was the final count? On... Money raised. Donations. I think it's around... the. £1,400 mark. Very good, well done. Very good, very impressive. Uh, thank you to everyone who has contributed because we had a lot of close friends that put a lot of money in as well, which is very nice. And uh, I hear you might be doing another one? Another one was on the cards for this coming weekend, 
obviously now it's going to be a bit more tricky to get there and do it. So um, watch this space. We might do, there's another one I think in September that we might aim for, it's a bit more realistic. Um, just to keep moving, keep on moving. You know what us Northerners like, we like to walk everywhere. <laughs> We'd have much choice. <laughs> yeah, you're always finding your car off on bricks. Diary with si and James. Um, so, are you running any of the, the Apple beaters after Dub Dub? Or as we sort of we called it, Wee Wee? Wee Wee? <laughs> um, I don't know if I am actually. I think I tried to install a few overnight, but they failed. So, you know, when you just kind of go, surely you know remind you me later to do it. You must know whether you are or not. I could probably check, couldn't I? But did you? I, I am running iOS 11. No, it's not iOS 11. What am I talking about? 12 I am running something. I am running iOS 12, specifically 12.0. Yep. Beta. We're up to beta two now. Ooh. On my second phone, so I've got a, uh, a second iPhone. This is your first world problem. He says, as I've watched you put out two different phones in the space of about the last 12 seconds. I've got personal, I've got work. That's exactly what I've got. And so I'm running iOS 12. Um, it's good. Is it? It's good. See, what phone have you got then? What so device? I've got one of these little little things. Oh, wow, he's a little. Um, size doesn't matter normally. But. <laughs> no, I've got one of these little things, these iPhone SEs. Right. Um, which is a really nice little phone. I really like it. But um, it's, it's, it's got some older tech in it. But I have to say, it's good. Are you seeing performance improvements? I am. That's the main thing, I think. I am. And we talked last time a bit about quality and how you do stuff, and, and then what Apple have done to change the way that they're viewing quality, but they clearly have changed the way that they're viewing quality. Nice. It's, it's good. It's uh, good. How about the features as well? Because they've got a lot of new features. Have they? There are a few new features. I mean, I really like the new notification stuff, so the groups notifications are really nice. Okay. Um, I don't actually have any notifications switched on on this phone normally, so I had to switch them all on to play around with it, and then I've immediately switched them all off again, because basically when you've got two phones, I don't need notifications on both. Um, I really like the screen time stuff. It's really cool, so I can find out how much I use my device. Again, right. it's, it's, it's really just a secondary phone, so once I get this on my primary phone, uh, which I use for 90% of the time, 95%, 98% of the time, a high percentage, then I'll be able to see how much screen time I'm using, and that, that, that'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing how many times a day I pick up and unlock my phone. When I say I'm looking forward to it. Are you really? No. No. But it will be an interesting data point, if nothing else. But the main thing is the performance. I am also running it on uh, an iPad Mini 4. Okay which is even older tech than this iPhone SE. So the iPhone SE has got the uh, A9 processor, which is the same as the iPhone 6S. Okay. And the iPad that I've got, the iPad Mini 4, is running an A8 processor, which is the same as an iPhone 6. Okay. And on iOS 11.4, even iOS 11, the whole, the whole of iOS 11, this iPad has been a pain. It's been slow, it's been clunky, it's been actually a little bit crashy. Um, but really, it's the performance has been really problematic. Running iOS 12, none of that. Wow. More stable and faster. Now, it's not fast. It is an old device. Mm. We're at least three generations out of date in the, in the tech inside. Um, that's fine. It, it's just gone from being really annoying to being basically okay. Okay. So, it's working out for everyone by the sound of it. No matter well, how old your device is, really, 
think if, most, most if people are having the same experience most Apple consumers are probably like three generations behind maximum I guess but if, if people are having the same experience as me then yeah it's, this is going to be a great release yes. cool what about the watch offs have you updated that yet never Okay. I won't do beaters on my watch why don't you use the watch then because you can't recover so if you put the beater on your iPhone and you have loads of problems you can put your iPhone into what's called DFU mode I can't remember how you do it, but you put your iPhone into DFU. I'm hearing FU and I'm here thinking something else. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> I wonder what the D stands for. Anyway, you put it into what's called DFU mode and you can download off the Apple developer website the, um, you can download the IPSW file from the Apple developer website, okay. which stands for <laughs> iPhone software, I believe. Okay. Um, and that's the file format that um, iPhone updates come in and you can then recover your phone through a Mac. Uh, quite easily. Okay. You can't do that with the watch. You can install the beta, and if there's a problem, you have to send it into Apple to get it repaired, mm. and they charge you for it. Ooh. So, I don't think I'll be running That's probably beta software on my watch. I'm hopeful that the next generation of the watch um, has some way of being a bit more user recoverable. Okay. So, the next generation of watch, when are they sort of anticipating that? I'm hopeful there'll be one in September. Similar sort of time frames of... Yeah. Interesting. So I'm, I'm definitely struggling with mine now. You're, you're, you're running a Series Zero, aren't you? Zero indexed watches, yes. <laughs> they are zero indexed. <laughs> Very good. Um, yes, I am on the first gen, and it's taken a bit of a battering. But um, how many years have I had it? A year and a half, nearly two years now. Um, considering an upgrade. It's oh. Christmas. Well, you're going to need to, because WatchOS 5, which is coming this year, doesn't support the original Apple Watch. Really? So um, you're going to need to do an upgrade if you want the latest software and if of course you're one of the few people who went out and bought a an £18,000 solid gold Apple Watch. You need to have a, a good look at yourself I think anyway. Well the, the main problem is it's now obsolete. It will be. So yeah. This is the problem with modern watches though I guess. Digital watches. You know, well, they, they don't last. Well, I've got, I've like got, a got classic, my proper. I've rate. got my Casio from 1987 or something. Does it have a calculator in it? I must admit, I bought a new one about 10 years ago. No, it's not. It's not a calculator. I, I needed. I remember when I went on my honeymoon, I needed to um, have a watch. Or I wanted to have a watch. You didn't need a watch for your honeymoon, surely? No, I wanted to have a watch. You wanted to, yeah. Um, and I, I, at that point, I was wearing a watch most of the time, but not all of the time. And so I wanted to have a watch, and uh, the only watch I actually had was quite a nice, fairly expensive watch that I was given as a present. Nice. I thought, you know what? I'm not going to take that. And I went and bought a Casio the cheapest one of the classic Casio digital watches for about I think I spent about £9 on it last of the big spenders waterproof down to like 50 metres it's got a little light the one that shines from the side which is just brilliant I love that the retroness of it and it's still going strong today uh, I haven't worn it in years but it's still going strong and I wore it for three or four years the whole time I love that retro look and uh, we have a colleague who wears uh, a Casio with a calculator on it she's even got it in gold oh fancy but, indeed it's, it's the one of the metal Casio watches I love those retro watches but now I've got the Apple Watch. But yeah, so the, these, the, the Apple Watch is not really a digital watch in the traditional sense. It's a, it's a computer on your wrist, and yes. computers go obsolete. Yes, they do. That's the problem. But then if you go true analog watch, they don't, they don't go obsolete. They last as well. But they last forever. Exactly. They just don't tell very good time. Realistically, how close do you need to get with your time on, on your watch? I reckon within about six or seven microseconds. Wow. 
You're a little bit OCD there, aren't you? Only a little bit. I didn't say one mic. <laughs> Very nice. So yeah, I'm, I'm on the market, I think, come September. Let's see what we do. Talking of watch, actually, I saw some um, recommendations at the weekend to s turn it upside down because apparently you don't hit the buttons as much. So I've, I've switched it over last night. What? You can I, see, I I've got it on my left hand. I don't, I don't understand. And the crown is normally facing out towards your hand and they've suggested you to put the crown towards your arm because you're less likely to press accidentally. Why are you pressing And you get better control over the scroll as well. Rather than using your finger, you use your thumb, which is a bit more accurate. Were, were, were you pressing the buttons accidentally? Um, less that, but uh, the control I'm interested by. So, and if you're doing exercise as well, the crown does get touched quite a lot. So, yeah. yeah don't touch my crown. Don't touch your crown. Um, so well, I'm gonna give it a trial for the week and see if it makes a difference. So I wear a watch on my right hand because I'm actually very strange. So the only reason. What is a traditional way? Because this is like a gender thing normally. But when I seem to remember at school it was no, the men wear it on the left, the women wear it on the right. Really? So maybe they just made that up. That's earrings. Um, <laughs> anyway, no, I, I wear mine on my right wrist, um, and I think the rule. There's no rule. There's no rule. But I think in general people wear a watch on their non-dominant hand. Makes more sense. However, I'm right-handed. I wear a watch on my right hand. I eat left-handed, though. Oh. In terms of the way I hold a knife and a fork. You're the other way round. So I hold a fork in my right hand. Yeah. Whereas people who are right-handed would typically hold a fork in their left hand. If you go to any restaurant, it's still the other way around, right? Well, that, that, that's how it's set up. Because yeah. most people are right-handed. Uh, right um, I do it the wrong way around, and I really don't know why. And I spent 15, 20 years living uh, with my parents uh, as a child, and then... A very young adult. Um, I'm not sure if it's ever an adult of any sort, but and I, I would switch around the knife and fork every day at every meal for like 15 years, and for some reason my my parents could never get it into their heads to just set the table the other way around. I sat in the same chair at the table for 15 years as well. We all had our spot at the table. Um, it was very, very strange. Anyway, it, it's, it's it's me that's strange, by the way, not them. Um, well, they, they might be as well. The, it's normally hereditary. Thanks. The, uh, I'll take. I'll speak for myself as well. But I, I, wear, I wear the watch on my right hand, and I have the crown facing my hand. Yeah. And I, I don't mind. I, I think it's. I think I can control the crown better with my, my finger than my thumb. But I don't know. I haven't tried turning it around the other way. It feels weird because you to for me to put the crown on the other side. If I want to use it, I have to sort of reach across the face of the watch. Maybe that's yeah. Which. I don't want to do, but of course when you've turned it that way, the crown is also facing into your body, but that is, is down, is on the lower part the of the watch. My thumb is easy access in it. Yeah. Well, whereas mine, if I switched it, that crown would be on the top right, Maybe as you look at it, which would be a little bit less aesthetically pleasing, I think. But yeah, so I, I feel like I'd have to stretch across the watch face, mm. which, yeah, how much do you use the crown? Not a huge amount at the moment, to be honest. Um, so I'm still on theatre mode, since the last time we talked. So I'm getting very few distractions on my watch now as well. I don't get any motion awareness or any of that. No note push notifications, apart from phone calls. It's great. It's, it's like I've relieved myself of social media and all the noise. You've relieved yourself, relieved myself. Um, I, I, I don't use the crown a huge amount, but I, so maybe it wouldn't matter if I switched it. But I think also there's a bit of muscle memory. I've been how, how long has the watch been around? Two, three years, something like that. Yeah, is it? Yeah. I think it's, be, I think it's about three years now we've had them. And, um, 
I've got a bit of muscle memory built up, so exactly. I don't want to break that. But like I say, if you don't use it much, it's probably going to be less impact, but I don't know. I'm just going to give it a try. Give I'm, it a try. I'm willing to try things, give obviously. Give it a try. It's good that you can switch these things around. Yes. Apple did well to have that option, and they had that at the launch. So. They did. So, what are we going to talk about today? Anything well, else in particular? As I walked into this room, this wonderful room that we're recording in, you said the word rant to me. Rant, yes. Well, the rants were really related to life and cars and all that jazz. Uh, so, it, we've kind of covered a lot of that already. I could go on and on about that, but I don't think anyone really gives a crap about it. Fair enough. Um, let's move on then. Verbal Diary with Cy and James. Well, we were talking about quality. Yeah, we were. So last week, we last week, whenever it was, it feels like about six months ago, we had a little conversation about a couple of different things to do with managing teams and getting more performance out of a team and um, trying to deliver higher quality software at a more rapid cadence. Mm-hmm. And I set the homework for us to go and read a few articles on writing automated testing. So when we build our software, we want to write automated tests. Or historically, we have wanted to write automated tests that allow us to determine if the software is performing uh, and behaving in the way that we expect it to in an automated fashion. So every time we change the software, a computer somewhere can run a series of automated scripts, in essence, that determine whether the software the, uh, change that we've made has broken anything. That should, in theory, allow you to move rapidly. And both of us kind of went, does it? Yep. We're always told it does. By our testing fellow friends as well. But does it? Or should we just have an army of people who test everything all the time? Or is there some other balance, some other approach? That's, That's kind of what we were chatting about last time. Good recap, if you ask me. Um, very impressed. Well done. Well, thank you. Um, and I said, let's go and read a few articles to see if there is a way of um, quantifying the value of different types of automated testing. Now, since then, I have definitely quantified the value of not doing the homework because I haven't read the articles. What about you? So, you, you, it took nearly a week to get the links from you, quite frankly, so, you know. I failed in every way in the last two weeks. I, I, I really need to apologise to, to my co-host here and say, sorry, I'm sorry. No, it's I, I'm an abject failure. Um, well, hold that thought, because it took you a week to send them. It took me a further week to try and read them, and I still failed miserably to understand what was going on. These, these weren't just blog articles or medium posts or tweets. These were white papers about testing code quality. So I have actually read a little bit of these articles, and yes, they're pretty hardcore. And so I think what we're saying is we need an extra couple of weeks to really digest and absorb. I think, yes, we do. We need tech. The other thing, I've had a bit of a digital detox last week. I didn't touch my, any of my devices when I got home after work. So trying to read that was going to be virtually impossible anyway. But um, I also think we might need to get some help on this. Not generally. I mean, people that are experts or specialists in this area, um, clearly we're not experts, let's say. Talk to yourself. Okay. I'm certainly not. Neither am I. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) But we, we do have friends in the world that are pretty strong in this area. So 
maybe we should reach out and grab some people that can help us with this. So I have someone in mind and hopefully they'll be joining us on the next podcast and we can have that discussion in more depth. But what's your thinking around this stuff now? Like having had a few weeks to absorb the ideas that we spoke about last time. I'm still not entirely convinced that, you know, writing all the unit tests for 100% coverage brings that much value. As I said, I started reading through some of these pieces and there were some good arguments put forward, but that was obviously from that extreme angle of it does it add value. We need to ask some people that can see the value as well, so it's not, it's a more fair. Um, discussion and debate. There was talk about um, the amount of code you have to write to cover, to create those tests and cover your tests can almost more than double. As an example of if you had an old tape of code, you know, going real back to the Fortran days, you'd need at least two more tapes to write the unit test for your your code. Is that? Good use of our time when you're still getting errors being shipped and bugs. So I'm not convinced. I think we need some help on this generally. Um, I've seen a lot of projects recently as well that are taking a lot longer than I expected. And it, again, it comes down to writing the test last and making sure the code quality is at the benchmark they've set. Um, not seeing the quality come through at the other end, They're still finding books, still finding issues. What are they writing the test for them? So it could be an education piece for the teams as well, the engineers, the people that are writing this test. Do they understand what they're doing themselves? Do they need more coaching around that side of things? What are they actually testing? I don't know. I'm rambling. So I was having a little think about all this stuff. The unit tests are can be thought of as a safety net. So I don't think I'm good enough as a developer, or ever was good enough, to really write high quality code without unit tests. I I needed that safety net to ensure that my software design met a certain minimum standard. However, do most developers think in that way? And then there's the question of going right back to where this topic all started which was very much around we are writing a bunch of tests we're doing what we consider to be best practice but we're shipping bugs Mm. so let's actually unpick some of this stuff and go are we doing best practice in the right way so yeah we, we, we believe testing is a good practice but is that enough are we actually doing this in a way that does add the value that we're saying it can and should add? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe that's why we're shipping bugs, despite having all of the automated tests that we feel we should have. Are we writing the tests at the right time? So for unit tests, if you're writing them after the event, typically what happens is that you're testing the code you've written, rather than testing the functionality you should have built. Yep. Now, if you haven't written tests as part of your development process, is it worth writing unit tests at all? Well, actually, I'm not sure about that one. Then we've got end-to-end tests, and particularly in a UI world where, where you're building visual components that people are going to interact with. Maybe something higher level is, is sufficient, 
Maybe we don't need unit tests, some sort of end-to-end -end test that tests the whole system rather than the very small units or components of a system is actually enough. Maybe it would be better if it was effective unit testing, but maybe it wouldn't. And maybe other types of tests are enough. But I think it's that safety net that really got me thinking about, well, what do I need to do here? How do I make, how do I get the best outcomes here? And I'm not sure the answer, I have an answer, but I do think that this is a good question that we've asked. But I think we need to unpick it just a little bit and say, are we doing best practice in the right way? Or are we doing it for the wrong reasons as well, best practices? They, well, just because they're best practices just mean they're the right thing to do sometimes. That's a really good point as well. Yeah. If, if, to go back to the original question of how do we ship more things quicker? And in a better quality. And keeping good quality. It doesn't have to be better quality, but at least maintain quality. No, let's get quality better. So that's another topic, I think, as well. But <laughs> at the early stages of defining what you're going to build with your engineers and your testers or QA people, or what you, how you want to define them, what questions are being asked at that point to understand the amount of test coverage and types of testing to get the best quality out? Are those conversations being had? You know, depending on the team setup, I guess, and the maturity of that team sometimes. Um, last week, for example, we, actually a few weeks ago, we, we had um, a bit of a workshop around testing, um, and one of the guys put to the table, there's, I think about 16 cards of questions that you can ask when you're refining your stories or getting your, your development pieces ready. Um, and it covers all the things from accessibility to performance to um, bugs, um, performance, everything. And they're asking all the right questions. Well, we've never asked these questions in our previous refinement sessions or 3Mega sessions. Certainly now we've got these visual cards and that actual discussion points that are right next to the team's development environment where we can do that before we pick up the piece. Even during progress, that stuff, we can stop the conversation dead and just kind of go, point at the card, are we dealing with this now? Or do we need to think about it before it's too late? And I think that's probably a better way of thinking sometimes because you can get so bogged down by best practices and neglects just getting things done getting shit live and get some feedback from the actual customers or the QA engineers or the end-to-end -end testing or whichever mechanisms you've got in the process to get that thing live. So again, lots of food for thought, no outright actions or decisions, it's just, yeah. What's going on in the world of software testing in general? You're asking me? I am. Uh, well, no, I guess I'm asking <laughs> the ether. Uh, I kind of feel like the conversations here that I'm seeing are coming from the wrong angle. And I, I don't really know if people in the software engineering community actually value software testing. Ooh. And I'd like to know a little bit more about, about that part of the community and say, well, is this valuable? Are these people adding value? Are they useful people? Are software testers actually getting involved in the way they should? I mean, I, I see at uh, the place that, that we both work that software testing is both a really active, vibrant, um, and a really quite interesting community, but also I'm not convinced that software testers have any voice. So they're both doing a lot of stuff that 
actually turns out often to be navel-gazing, but is good stuff, and they, they, they have a lot of um, good thinking around their own practice and, and what should be happening, etc. But does anyone care? Do the actual people building the code, writing the code, building the software, do they actually care? I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I beg to differ on some of that. I think the... So let's just clear this up. In the team makeup we've generally got around us, you have dedicated front-end or software engineers, or developers, or everyone to find them, and testers, otherwise known as QA engineers as well. And they're the two sort of distinct roles we have around teams. And So the former are generally the guys that write the software, and the latter are the ones that test it and find ways of testing and improving and ensuring quality, hence the abbreviation quality assurance. Um, so in the teams I've worked in, there's been a really close collaborative nature between those two roles and a lot of respect for each other. You know, they both appreciate each other's skills and mindsets and approaches to problem, you know, problem solving and delivery. But there's still this them and us divide between the two. And because of that, I think there is a little bit of rivalry, a little bit of naturally. There's a little bit of a, a divide between the two roles. And you still see a lot of developers batting work over to the testers to sign it off, essentially, and get it live, not finishing stuff together, not writing that automation test up front, not thinking about true TDD as part of the delivery. But well, when you say what you just said, yeah, I think you're right that people don't work together enough. Not enough. I think that they, they try, they have good intention, but naturally they fall into this pattern of just treating each role individually. But you thought you felt there was a pattern there of going, well, we should work together, we should write the automation test, we should write the TVD properly. But the whole, the whole conceit of what we're talking about is, is, is that the right way to do stuff, to write the automated tests? I'm not questioning the idea of working together. So I think there's multiple traps here that one can fall into. The, the software testing community, is it... So certainly where we work and probably in other places as well, is it too far out on the edge? Are they having the influence on the process, on the way we build software, on how we think about things that they should have? They are the arbiters of quality. I, I, I think you're right. I think they are treated as an afterthought too much. And we need to get them essentially before that, or before the development starts. They should be the, the wraparound of actually executing this stuff. You know, thinking about up front, how do we ensure quality? What are the factors we need to monitor for each piece of work we deliver? And then work again, trying to avoid that cliche of collaborativeness, but they should be working with the engineers to then ensure it's delivered as a quality item, using all their methods and me tech mechanisms and techniques to do that. What stops them doing that today then? Habits. I think it's old habits. Um, and we are in this sort of moment at the moment, well, I think, I think testing has become a lot more prevalent in the last sort of five to ten years, I reckon, traditional development, software development. And we are, we are trying to resolve these paradigms and work out better ways of working. We're not quite there yet. There's good intentions, but it's because of the old habits, I think people are just setting their ways and it's difficult to break those changes. Well, we're talking about engineers here, they are creatures of habit. Me and you yourself, you know, we, I think we both come from that background as well. We have our habits that we cannot just shape. So how do we do that? I mean, so, someone who works 
now with sort of personal development, people development, training side of things, what do you see nowadays? Where when you bring so we, we you know we bring new people in, complete blank campuses almost to software engineering. How have we addressed it in that sense? I'm not sure about the habits thing. Really? I'm going to say something else. It's controversial. Go on. You love the controversy. Laziness. It's, it's another form of it, I guess. So I think there's fun, shiny work that you can do as a software engineer. And then I think there's the less interesting slog work that you kind of have to do, but it's not very exciting. And I'm afraid to say that a lot of the software testing role fits into the latter of those two parts of the job. Those people we've brought in as a genuine blank canvas, I think we've instilled the right attitude in them. But even people who are coming to us after just, say, two years' experience, I think it's almost too late. Really, that soon? Yeah. You, you, you think about um, forming habits, I think it happens very quickly. So if it is habitual, it, it, it happens almost immediately. But it's more than just that. I think we need to um, make sure that people like you and I actually understand the value of the different parts of the software testing role and then espouse that value. We need to we need to live those values. We need to make sure that everyone around us understands that value and that it's more than just oh boring or interesting work, but actually it's right, this is part of the process and if you demonstrate to people that there is actual value in taking on that additional effort then I think people are much more amenable to doing the right thing. Okay, Which, I think it comes down to the personas of the people we work with sometimes, because you do get people that are open to suggestions and willing to try new things, but then you do get people that are a lot more set in their ways, very difficult to change. So trying to sell that to some people is virtually impossible. Even with the most motivational speaker, the most elaborate sort of coach or however you want to define them, you just will not change them. They are so set in the ways. That said, you will get, I'd say they are the minority. I think that most people are open to change despite habits. It's to, but then it is the right. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sold by, on that, by the way. I, I'm not convinced. By what? I think when people form habits, those habits stick way harder than you might, than you're making out. Um, I'm being cautiously optimistic on this. Ah. Uh, yeah, I'm being perfectly realistic. <laughs> it sounds like there's two questions in here. What is the right thing? Okay. And then how do you make people do it? So if the right thing is hardcore TDD or ATDD and loads of automated testing, fine. How are we going to make people do it? Because they're not doing it today. Mm. Not necessarily to the, to the standard that we would expect. Not, not in a way that demonstrates the value that we're being told exists. And, th and that's what we're doing at the moment, is questioning some of the given norms, yeah? Some of the given knowledge that uh, we're, we're told is the, the truth. best practices, These, they're not, they're not, I mean, it's not mean we're doing them, they are just the best practice. So, so maybe there's now two questions we need to go away and consider. Oh my God. <laughs> we're going to get better at doing homework. Um, <laughs> Definitely. What is the right thing to do? And then how do we make sure that people are doing it? And maybe a part of this, maybe a third question, three, is... Crap teacher, one question only. <laughs> maybe a third question is, how do we make sure that the software testing community 
is on an equal footing to the software engineering community, which I think in some places it's not. I think that latter question could be really difficult to answer. I don't think the first question was particularly easy to answer. Yeah, actually, forget it, all questions are hard. I'm going to ask you an easy question, which will round off this week's episode, I suspect, or bring us towards a close. A natural close. The, the easy question I'm going to ask you is... Verbal Diary with Cy and James. When are we next recording? Uh, oh, sorry, that's a really hard question. It's a really difficult question. So we're, 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 trying, this, like. we're, we're trying this new format um, yeah. where we do this in person. We've been struggling to find a, a mutually convenient time in the evenings and weekends to do this. Um, I think I think a couple of weeks is as normal. I, I think it'll be yeah. I think it'll be a couple of weeks. So we've got two more weeks to do this homework. We will do it. And next time could be a bit more of an epic episode epic. where we try to start answering where we try to start answering the big questions that we've set for ourselves. Yes, I believe so. But for this week. I think we're going to have to call it there, aren't we? Are we done? We Come on, give us the socials. The socials, all that. Okay, you can go, grab us on the Twitters, uh, at Verbal Diary Show. We're on the Facebook, Verbal Diary Show, and Google Plus, Verbal Diary Show. I am trying to get us on Google Podcasts now it's available, but that's not very easy still for the UK market, unfortunately. Um, we are available on iTunes, though, and all your other favourite podcatchers, Breaker, um, so many now. I went on a rampage the other day and got some, as many as we could. Please do comment, feedback. We need your input on this one, I think. So please do get in contact directly on the Verbal Diary Show or individually at Nautils and at Cy. Um, let us know what you think and if you want to come on for a conversation, we will listen. Have we got any dad jokes to wrap up? Dad jokes? My dad died when we couldn't remember his blood type. As he died, he kept insisting for us to be positive, but it's hard without him. Oh, that's terrible. My wife has left me because I borrowed her wheelchair. It's okay, I'm sure she'll come crawling back. Oh, that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs>